Well, friends, we are continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark, and this morning we come to the first few verses of chapter 2, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I am going to read these 12 verses out loud, and I would ask you, uh, as you're able, to stand uh, for the reading of God's Word, and then when we're, when we're done, I'll say, this is the Word of the Lord, and we'll say, thanks be to God. So please stand. Um, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. <clears throat> and when he returned to Capernaum after some days, that is the Lord Jesus, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. I am 37 years old, which to some of you is very young, to others of you probably feels very old. Given my limited or extensive life experience, depending on your perspective, um, I have increasingly been convinced of the importance of forgiveness. When I was a very young man, uh, the, the important things seemed to be what I was going to do and what I was going to accomplish. What lies ahead in terms of my abilities and capabilities. Uh, but as I have experienced more life, I think probably even year after year, uh, the significance and the importance of forgiveness, that I myself be forgiven and that I, be, that I be willing, that I be able, that I be eager to forgive others and forgive them from the heart, the way the Lord Jesus tells us to forgive, has become more and more significant. Uh, some of you may have a similar experience. I mean, some of you may have seen, in relational terms, the impossible happen when someone is forgiven when a relationship has fallen apart, when a breach has been made or serious hurt and offense has been done, 
and you think, well, my heart will never be soft towards that person again. But then forgiveness by the grace of God turns a stony heart into a soft heart again. Forgiveness sought or not sought. You maybe have, have felt the experience of a relationship being restored with somebody who you thought would never be there. Or you maybe even have felt the experience of your own heart changing, even when a relationship cannot be reconciled because of the power of forgiveness. The blessing of, of being forgiven and the work of actively forgiving others seems more and more significant to me. And forgiveness is, in some ways, the focus of our text today. Our, our greatest need, I would argue to you, is forgiveness. And Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ alone, has the power to forgive us. Our greatest need is forgiveness. And Christ alone has the power to forgive. As we walk through this text today, I have three points. Uh, I want to talk to you first about the, the priority of forgiveness. I want to talk also about the problem of forgiveness. And then finally, we want to talk about the proof of forgiveness. In this text, we see the Lord Jesus makes it crystal clear that forgiveness is his priority. The scribes bring up a legitimate problem with that forgiveness being given. And the Lord Jesus offers a convincing proof that he can, in fact, forgive sins. Before we get to the actual text, I do want to give you just a little bit of context, a little bit of the, the setting here in a more broad sense. As we've been making our progress through the Gospel of Mark, we have come to sort of the end of a section and we're beginning a new one. Mark chapter 1, the chapter divisions in, the, in the, the English translation that we have don't always follow the outline in the text all that well, but in this case it does. Chapter 1 is very much about an introduction to Jesus Christ. Who is he? And we've spent the last couple months going through those texts one by one and thinking, who is he? What has he come to do? What is this person like? What is his mission? Mark turns uh, the, the subject a little bit here. And we consider the Lord Jesus from a, a different perspective in chapter 2 and in the beginning of chapter 3 as we consider what the world's response is to him. We've been introduced to him and now we are exposed to how people respond to the Lord Jesus. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2 and really going through verse 6 of chapter 3. And the way that people respond is largely uh, controversy. The crowds listen to him, the crowds are amazed, a, a select group of people believe and become his disciples. But there is quite a bit of conflict and controversy brewing even in the very beginning here. Mark chapter 2 in, in some ways is illustrating what the, the John the Apostle says in his first chapter of his gospel in verse 11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Now, the controversy in this chapter takes place really in five sort of scenes. The first couple having to do with forgiveness and sinners and the reception of sinners and how this is controversial to the scribes. And then the, the last three having to do with the, the law and the Sabbath and the way that Jesus conducts himself. But first today, uh, the controversy is surrounding this topic of forgiveness. Can Jesus forgive people their sins? Now, 
this topic is introduced in, in a sort of a surprising account, uh, a remarkable account, really, of this man being let down through the ceiling on a bed, which just conjures all kinds of wild images in our imagination. Look at verses 1 through 4. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, you remember the Lord Jesus, Capernaum is where Peter uh, lived and his mother-in-law was there and where these healings took place and this first event in the synagogue happened in chapter 1. And then Jesus had gone all throughout Galilee healing and, uh, and preaching the word and casting out demons. Well, he now has returned to Capernaum and it was reported that he was at home. Now, we have no record of the Lord Jesus owning a home in Capernaum. It's, it's likely that it was Peter's house that is referred to here where he was laying his head temporarily. And when Jesus comes back to Capernaum, at this point, his notoriety has spread significantly, even from when he was here um, previously. And so many are gathered together, verse 2 says, so that there's no more room, not even at the door. And think back to the last time that you were in a setting like that. It maybe it may has been some time since you were in a room where it was, it was standing room only. And there were people sitting on the floor. I remember a, a couple of years ago when we were at First Presbyterian Church, now First Evangelical Presbyterian, for the Reformation Day service, which is coming up soon, by the way. The, the room was packed. There were people sitting on the floors. They were standing with their backs up against the walls. Uh, children sitting in the aisle. There was hardly any room even at the door in that large and, and very beautiful room where we were meeting that day. Well, I'm imagining that where Jesus was at Peter's house was probably not a room of that size, and it probably was not so beautiful, but it was packed, and the people were crowded around, so there wasn't room even to get up to the door to hear what Jesus was saying. And Mark tells us, and he was preaching the word to them. Of course he was. We looked a few weeks ago at verse 41 of the previous chapter, no, I'm sorry, verse 38 of the previous chapter, where he says, I came to preach, this is why I came out. I've come to announce this good news to sinners, and that's why I'm here. So here he is with these people gathered around him in this house, preaching the word to them. I don't know how long he did that. I don't know the exact content of what he was saying. We have several sermons of his recorded in the Gospels, so we have some idea. Uh, but there was no amplification. He didn't have a neat little microphone like this one. So people were crowded around to hear. But there wasn't room for everyone. But there was this one fellow who the Scriptures refer to in verse 3 as a paralytic. And that's somebody who, who has paralysis of some kind. We don't know the exact nature of his paralysis. We know that it uh, evidently it prevented him from being able to walk because in order to get to Jesus, he had to be carried by, by four of his friends. Wheelchairs were not a, a thing of this age. So he is on some kind of a mat, some kind of a bed or cot, and he is being carried by four friends to get to Jesus. Verse 4 tells us that when they could not get near him because of the crowd... They removed the roof above him. Now, here the story becomes increasingly incredible. I mean, it's incredible enough imagining us carrying someone to get to somebody. Surely they imagined more than just him hearing the sermon. They knew that Jesus had the power to heal. 
And this man who was, who was paralyzed, this man who was crippled in some fashion and was not able to even get himself up, his friends believed that if they could get him to the Lord, he would be healed. And of course, they were right. But when they get to the door, there's no room, so they go up on the roof. Now, now don't, don't imagine them getting out a ladder and putting it up against the side of the house. In the ancient world uh, here in, in uh, Capernaum in Galilee, I, I told you the foundations from what we think is Peter's house are still there. The, these were, these were smallish buildings with flat roofs, and a lot of times there was an outdoor stone staircase up to the roof because the roof was a place where a lot of, a lot of life would go on. Um, people would spend time up on the roof eating, fellowshipping, uh, even, even time in prayer. You know, we find Peter in the book of Acts on the roof praying. So these fellows carry this man up on the roof of the house, which would not have been unusual, but then they do something that is very unusual. They start to dig a hole in the roof. They remove the roof above him. Literally, the text says they dig through it. Now, the roof, you know, this, this was not sheet metal roof. This was not asphalt shingles nailed down or anything like that. These are, this is thatch and tile and, and the, the, you know, first century building materials. And it would have been entirely possible without a jackhammer to dig a hole in the roof of this house. But they did. This is not their house. No. This, is not, this is not their property. They go up on the roof and they start digging a hole through it. And given the type of building that it was, there was not drywall on the inside of the house. Uh, surely there was some noticeable effect on the room where the Lord Jesus was preaching. There would have been some dust, some dirt trickling down. There would have been some sound. You know, we live in an old house near downtown, and there's sometimes sound in the roof, and it sounds like the squirrels are trying to get through. In this case, there were some, some grown adult people really digging a hole in the roof. Then a hole appears while Jesus is teaching. You know, and then evidently, a man starts to come through this hole. Right? Maybe feet first. I mean, he's lowered on some kind of a mat. We don't know exactly what the circumstances are. But you've got to imagine this scene. It would have been wild. I mean, imagine, imagine if here on Sunday morning, <laughs> the room was so packed that people could, could not get in here. And somebody was desperate, so they started coming through this, the cinder block wall there. You know, they'd, they'd gotten some sledgehammers out of their car, and they started to come through the cinder block. First of all, you know, the deacons would be alarmed, right? And we would be, we would be stunned by what was happening. I would probably <laughs> be tempted to be offended. Hey, I'm preaching a sermon here. Why are you causing all this commotion in the middle of it? But the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus shows no sign of offense. Notice this in verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. When Jesus saw their faith. Now, of course, faith is not something you can see with your eyes. Jesus saw the, the outworking of their faith. There was a desperation to get to him. Consequences throw to the wind. I'll dig a hole in somebody else's house to get to the Lord Jesus, to get my friend who is in need to him. That's faith. I'm going to get to him, and I don't care what it costs me. And any obstacle that gets in my way, I'm going to get around it somehow. I've got to get to Christ. He sees their faith, 
And he says to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. He pronounces, surprisingly, he pronounces forgiveness. I say surprising not only because he's, he's not evidently shocked and offended by his sermon being interrupted by somebody demolishing the house that he's in in a small way, but also, I mean, forgiveness is probably not the first thing that they were seeking. Now, they probably didn't bring the man who was paralyzed on his bed and dig a hole in the roof so that his sins would be forgiven him. They brought him so that he'd be healed, so that the Lord Jesus would say, rise and walk, and he would rise and walk. But Jesus doesn't even mention his paralysis. Here in the text, he says, son, your sins are forgiven you. And that brings me to the first point that I want to make to you, the priority of forgiveness. In verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus ignores in this moment the physical need of this person who's brought before him in desperation. And he instead addresses his need for forgiveness. Now, if we were there, or I guess I should say, if this were happening in today's context, and you, you saw a preacher do something like this, the world's response would probably be, how callous, how, how opportunistic of this religious zealot to use this person's misfortune and suffering to further their religious agenda. How, how shameful that a person would respond to someone with serious physical need, serious felt need by addressing some spiritual concern. How manipulative to use this man's predicament in that way. You can imagine people responding like that. That's often the way that people think today. Is that so? Is that what Jesus was doing? Was he being callous and manipulative? Was he using this man's suffering to forward his religious agenda? Well, no. We know from just the previous text in verse 41 of the previous chapter that when Jesus, when the leper came to him, he was moved with pity. He clearly has a tender heart towards people that are suffering. But when the Lord Jesus sees this man and sees him in his disability, sees him in his need brought down before him, the Lord Jesus sees more than just a man with a disability. The Lord Jesus sees an eternal soul made in the image of God who has needs that are, believe it or not, far greater than the need to walk physically. You know, we're living in a time when the world around us, by and large in our society, says there is no such thing as an eternal soul. Uh, that we are, we are merely the sort of biological machines that... Every single thing in us, everything about the way we think, the way we act, the way we feel, it all has a, a chemical response that is underlying it somewhere. There's something happening in the brain, in the body, and really we're just these machines, and we, you know, we, we turn on, and at the end of our lives, we turn off, and the machine no longer works, and everything is just purely a mechanistic in that way. There's nothing that exists other than what we can observe with our own instruments and our own senses. Right? If I can't look at it under a microscope, if I can't calculate it according to uh, you know, this or that algorithm or logarithm, or I'm, I'm out of my depth here vocabulary-wise, but if I can't 
If I can't deduce it somehow, then it doesn't exist. If I can't observe it, then it isn't real. You know, our age is one in which we, we feel that we are the ones who validate reality. And if I can't validate it, then it doesn't exist. Now, that, that is a, a very simplistic way of thinking. And, uh, and there are many people in the world that do not think that way. Uh, I'll tell you all, I've mentioned it before, I used to work for a hospice. And uh, at that hospice, I, I worked with, this is a place where you know, people in the last six months of life. Um, and there were lots of well-educated, clear-thinking, reasonable professionals in the medical field, people uh, who were medical doctors who worked at this hospice with me. And I cannot think of a single person in that hospice who denied the reality of the human soul. Whether they were Christian people, whether they were particularly religious or not. Because part of what we were doing with hospice was you would, you would spend a lot of time with people in the last days of their life, and you were oftentimes with people at the moment of their death. And if you've not been in that experience, if you've not had that experience before, I know some of you have. It's very difficult to describe, but something happens when someone dies. It doesn't look like they're asleep. It doesn't feel like they're asleep. You know, by the time they're in the casket and they have the makeup on, they look like they're asleep. That's what the makeup is for. But they're in that moment when they have actually breathed their last. And it took me, I couldn't figure out what was going on at first when I was experiencing this, but after dozens of times, you know, they, it's like the person's made of clay all of a sudden. Because it is not the person anymore, it is their body. Something is gone. It's not just the machine has turned off. There was something here and that something is gone. Wherever you think it has gone, it's gone. It's a soul. The eternal soul that is part of who we are as human beings. There is more to us than can be seen and observed with our eyes and our equipment and our instruments. The Lord Jesus knows this, of course. And he was the one who made man. John chapter 1, verse 2, all things were made through him. And so as he's looking at this individual there laying on this mat, suffering from paralysis, the Lord Jesus is looking at him and he knows exactly who he is. This is the eternal Lord. And he's looking at someone with an eternal soul. And he begins to address the needs of the eternal soul. I'll just ask you in passing here as we go on. Do you know that you are more than just a body? Do, do you know that you are more than just a, a bunch of chemical reactions? That you have an eternal soul? That there is some part of you that will live on after your physical body has died? that there is something spiritual about you. It's, it's not silly to ask that question, I think. There are many people outside the church and unfortunately inside the church that live as if this life were all. And there is nothing beyond. Live as if my whole purpose were just to make sure I have enough food and enough money so that I can be happy and feel pleasure in this life and then when it's over, who cares because it's over. As if I were just a machine that one day is going to run out of gas. There is more to it, friends, than that. The Lord Jesus says, 
to the crowds later, a few chapters later in Mark, in Mark chapter 8. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? More than just identifying this man has an eternal soul, though, the Lord Jesus identifies the greatest need of the soul, and that is forgiveness. I think, you know, it might have been odd for the people in the room that he even mentions forgiveness. You know, was this man a known criminal? I mean, was this, were, there, were there wanted posters of this man around Capernaum? Unlikely. I mean, he's paralyzed. He couldn't walk. But the Lord Jesus identifies him as a sinner in need of forgiveness. The Lord knows that this is a man born in sin and at odds with his maker. Whether or not he was a notorious sinner in Capernaum, the Lord Jesus knows that Adam sinned from the garden. That rebellion that puts self above God was part of this man's spiritual DNA from his birth. As David says in Psalm 51, well, let me read it to you. In Psalm 51, verse 5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin, and my mother conceived me. From the womb, from birth, this man, this paralytic, had a heart like all fallen human beings that was inclined to put himself above God. The Lord Jesus knows that, and he gets right to the issue. Uh, my, some of you know, my wife and I live near downtown Roanoke, and we, have a, we live in a house that's and, almost 130 years old at this point. And when we first moved in, you know, we were newlyweds. This was a neighborhood that we could afford to buy a house in. And the, the house you know, is full of all these cracks in the walls and the plaster. And I was like, oh, we'll patch the cracks. We'll patch the cracks. You know, I was like 21. I did not realize, of course, that the cracks were all there because the foundation was bad. Right. And patching the, you patch cracks all day long. If you want, there's going to be more cracks because the foundation is bad. It took me a few years to realize that what needs to happen, the, the foundation needs to be addressed, not just the cracks. And what we see with the Lord Jesus here, it's not a callous heart. He walks into a house that's full of cracks, and he says, ah, the problem's the foundation. Right. He, he walks right past the cracks in the wall. He walks right past the man laying there paralyzed in the bed and, and says, the problem is the soul. The problem is that you need to be forgiven your sin, not because he's callous, but because he knows what matters. This man has an eternal soul at enmity with God. And here he is. I mean, he's paralyzed. He, in, the first, in the first century, I mean, he would have been hanging by a thread in terms of his human life. And at the end of his life, as an enemy of God, there would be nothing but judgment waiting for him. It would be death. He would bear the weight of his own sins to the grave, and they would drag him down. This man needs to be rescued. He needs to be rescued immediately, and not just physically from his paralysis. He needs to be rescued spiritually. And because his problem was sin, he needs not just to be rescued spiritually by being enlightened or being instructed or being instructed or being empowered. He needs to be pardoned. He needs to be forgiven. The man needs to be forgiven by God before he meets him, before the reckoning comes that comes for all of us. And, and that's what the Lord Jesus does. He addresses his soul and he pronounces forgiveness. 
son, your sins are forgiven. Now, the second point I want to make to you, the first one is the priority. The Lord Jesus goes right to the issue of forgiveness in his soul because he knows what's really important. Now, the second thing, there's a problem with his forgiveness, though, and you see this in the response of the scribes in verse 6 and 7. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there. They're questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The scribes, these are teachers of the law. These are religious professionals, sort of a, a combination of, of lawyers and pastors, uh, moral police, uh, uh, a relatively unpleasant combination in human terms. But these, these folks were, were there in the room with the Lord Jesus, the, the religious experts. And they hear him say, your sins are forgiven you, and they object. It's one thing to forgive someone who sinned against you. you know, if, if I have sinned against you, and I come to you for forgiveness, you can say, I forgive you, of course. It's, a t- it's something else entirely to forgive someone else for something they've done unrelated directly to you. If I have sinned against you and George Dudman walks into the room and says, so I forgive you, your sins are forgiven you, you say, whoa, who does George think he is to walk into, sorry, thanks, George, right, to, to walk into the room and say your sins are forgiven you? How bold. You get a sense of why the Pharisees object this way. Who is this guy to say, your sins are forgiven you? Who can forgive like that? Well, only God can forgive like that. That's what they say. And they're right about that. You think of a, you think of a man on trial in a courtroom. Who can pardon the man there? Can the defense attorney pardon him? Can the, can the prosecuting attorney pardon him? Can, can even the victim of the crime pardon that person. No. The person with the authority is the judge. And friends, when it comes to the matter of forgiveness, all sin is ultimately against God, and he is the judge with the authority to forgive. This is another thing from Psalm 51 that David mentions in his own confession there. He says, I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before you. Then verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned, he says to the Lord, and done what is evil in your sight. Now, he does not mean that he didn't sin against Uriah or sin against Bathsheba, but he means every sin he did was ultimately against the Lord. Every, Every crime that he had committed was, even if it was against individuals, it was also against the God who made the individuals and who made David and had instructed David as to what righteousness is and how to live. You realize that, friends, every sin that you yourself have committed against someone else, whether it's children having sinned against your parents, or whether it's adults sinning against their neighbors or their friends or their co-workers, you do not only sin against that individual, you sin against the God who made them. You sin against the God who made you. And you can seek forgiveness from this individual and they can grant it, but but more importantly than getting forgiveness from them, you must be forgiven by God against whom you've sinned because he is the final judge and he has the final say. Have you come to terms with that in your own life yet? 
This was a significant moment in my own life. I was in my late teenage years when I was first exposed to this truth in the Bible. And it blew my mind because I thought that I was a good person who did not need to be forgiven. I didn't think I was a perfect person. I knew that I had made some mistakes, but I thought that in general, when you take things like motivation and circumstances into account, I was a very good person who should be thanked by God rather than needing to be forgiven by God. That was the way I saw myself. I see that now as ridiculous and even blasphemous, but that was the way that I thought. Maybe some of you are thinking that way. You're thinking, well, I'm not perfect, but no one's perfect. And as far as human beings go, I'm on the, the lighter side of things when it comes to transgressions. And surely, a person with my potential should be beloved by God and rewarded for the way that I've behaved. Well, the reality is that even if I am judged by my own standards, by the standards with which I judge others, I fall far short. I do often think and act like a hypocrite in that way, where I condemn others for things that I myself am guilty of. And if you judge me by my own standards, I'm found wanting even by those standards, not to mention God's holy standards. And I do need to be forgiven. The scribes got this right about the Lord Jesus. Who can forgive but God alone? They're wrong about the blasphemy, though. They were right. They were, you, you see why they were accusing him of it. How do you pronounce forgiveness for somebody? That's, that's crazy. You know, their logic is right. Who forgives sin but God alone? Here, this guy's saying he forgives sin. He must be blasphemous. Well, he's not blaspheming. And you know why? Because he really is God. He is making the claim legitimately. He is the man with authority to forgive their sins. And this is wild. The human man standing before this paralytic is the creator of the universe who has the ability to pronounce forgiveness just like that. Your sins are forgiven you. Right? Standing in the flesh looking in the face, forgive you for everything, right? Here the judge of all mankind, who will be terrifying to behold on the final day, here he is walking on the earth and able to forgive sins and willing to forgive sins. The judge of all creation is making house calls, forgiving sins, Cleansing souls and making people new. Now, when the Lord Jesus pronounced forgiveness, nothing visible happened, surely. It's a spiritual thing he's doing. But something monumental had happened in this man when the Lord Jesus pronounced him forgiven because what Jesus says is true, is true. When he says your sins are forgiven, they're forgiven. When he says let there be light, there's light. When he says, behold, I'm making all things new, he makes all things new. And when he says, your sins are forgiven, they are forgiven. Something monumental changes when the Lord Jesus makes that declaration. The mountain is moved, and this man's soul is made right with God. Your sins are forgiven. What else could matter compared to that? What does anyone's opinion matter compared to what God has said. Now, friends, do you believe that? 
Do you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God himself, stood before this man that day and said, your sins are forgiven you? That he really walked on the earth and really saw this man and really said it, and it was really true, that God really did this. And that the same God rules today. That the very same one sits on a throne in heaven. And he will forgive today. That brings me to the third point that I want to make. We see also in the text here a proof of forgiveness. We see the priority of forgiveness. It is the thing Jesus deals with first. There's a problem with forgiveness. How can a man say this? Well, he is not just a man. He is God. And then there's this proof of forgiveness in verses 8 to 12. Jesus, perceiving what the scribes were saying, or feeling, thinking in their minds, their hearts, he perceives in his spirit, they question within themselves, and, they sit, and he says to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Jesus knows what they're thinking, and he makes this comment, and the comment is a little bit cryptic. I've mentioned this to you before. I, I, in God's good providence and generosity, I have, I have 16 commentaries in the Gospel of Mark. And there there is not uniform opinion about what exactly he means by this, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or take up your bed and walk. I mean, some commentators are talking about the number of syllables, which one's actually easier to get out? You know, they, what does it mean? What is he saying? Which one's easier? Is it possible that he's saying it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because no one can disprove that? You can just say it even though to actually forgive sins would be much harder. Or maybe, the, maybe Jesus' point is that it's easy to say both of them, but impossible to actually do in human terms. Whatever he means specifically by the question, he does the impossible in the very next verse there, and he makes it clear what his point is in the question that he asks. Verse 10 but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. He does the impossible there. He tells the man to rise and walk, and he does. The man whose heart has been transformed by forgiveness now has his body transformed by the authority of the Lord. He stands up and he finds his legs strong beneath him, which must have been thrilling to watch. It must have been astounding for the people in the room. Surely they knew this man. It, was a, it wasn't that large of a community. And the guy stands up and his legs work. The point is explicit. Jesus makes it very clear. I did this so that you know, that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's what the question he's, that's what his point is. The physical miracle is done in order to prove that the spiritual miracle is also done. The physical act of power is exhibited so they can see with their eyes, so that they know that he also has the power to do the work in the soul. Physical evidence before their eyes. The man stands up and walks so that they can know he does have power to forgive sins. Which means he is God. Because who can forgive sins but God alone? It's an amazing thing that he does. And the people are astounded. The man rises up, immediately picks up his bed and goes out 
And they're all amazed and glorified. They're all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. It would have been incredible to be there. Friends, would you have believed it if you were there? If you saw him tell the man, stand up and walk, would you have believed, ah, he can forgive sins too? It's a question worth asking, I think. That's the point of him doing it, to show them, yes. But what if I told you, friends, that there is an even better proof that the Lord Jesus can and will forgive sins? And that is a a proof given to the whole world for all time. When he himself, who raised this man from his bed, went to the cross in the place of sinners, died a criminal's death and was buried, and then rose himself from the grave three days later to demonstrate that he has authority over life and death, that he is willing to forgive sin. The cross is the greater proof. The Lord Jesus, when people were looking for a sign, you remember in Matthew chapter 12, he said, this generation is going to get the sign of Jonah. The son of man will be in the grave for three days, and then he'll rise, the belly of the earth. Here's the sign that you will have. And friends, it's not the sign they were looking for, but what a sign that Jesus Christ died and rose again and lives even today. He goes to the cross to die a death he does not deserve to show his willingness, and he rose again from the dead to show his power. And then he tells his disciples to take this news to the whole world, that he died and rose and has all authority, and all who come to him will be forgiven. And his disciples did it. That's what Peter does in Acts chapter 2. Don't you see? He who died is alive. He sent the Holy Spirit so that we might pronounce forgiveness in his name. And it spreads to this very day. That's what's happening here. Forgiveness pronounced in his name. Because he who stood before the paralytic sits on the throne in heaven. He who raised the man from the mat, he himself was raised from the dead. And he has authority to forgive sins. Have you come to him for your sins to be forgiven? He will forgive you. You don't have to dig through a roof. He hears your prayers. And brothers and sisters, have you come to him long ago and in the meantime forgotten how much he's forgiven you? Have you forgotten what it is to hear those words from the Lord? Son, your sins are forgiven you. The state of your soul is made new. Everything is changed from this moment on. And the one whose opinion matters has declared, your sins are forgiven you. Come to him again and remember, because he has not changed, and he does forgive, and he truly forgives. Let's remember this together as we take the table here. That's what this is about. He, this is the greater sign, the proof. He gave his body. He poured out his blood that we might be forgiven. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your kindness in sending the Lord Jesus. And on Jesus Christ, thank you for coming that we might be forgiven for our sins. Thank you for dying on the cross in our place so that we might hear those precious words from you. Son, your sins are forgiven you. Help us to believe, we pray. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.